welcome to the Hotkey Podcast. I'm your host, Isabel Taylor, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be sharing this episode with you all. I hope you're doing okay and are keeping safe in these strange, unprecedented times, and hopefully this podcast can brighten your day even just a little bit. This month, we have the wonderful Intazar Kanani, the author of Thorn, speaking to us about inspiration, justice, and her journey into becoming a published author. In an interview recorded before lockdown and social distancing, our intern, Jill Boatswain, spoke to the magical Patrice Caldwell about vampires, queerness and people of colour in publishing. And of course, Patrice's new anthology, A Phoenix First Must Burn. And this month, we will be listening to the opening of The Last Paper Crane by Kerry Drury, narrated by Rina Takasaki. Intazar Kanani grew up a nomad and world traveller. Born in Wisconsin, she has lived in five different states as well as in Jeddah on the coast of the Red Sea. She currently resides in Cincinnati, Ohio with her husband and two daughters. Prior to publishing her novels, Intazar worked as a public health consultant on projects relating to infant mortality and minority health, which was as close as she could get to saving the world. Now she focuses her time on her two passions, raising her family and writing. Thorn is a fantasy novel about the power of choice, learning to fight for yourself and others, and above all, about learning to trust yourself. Based on the Goose Girl fairy tale by the Brothers Grimm, this chunky wonder is perfect for fans of Sarah J Maas, Cassandra Clare, and our own hockey author, Alexandra Christo. My journey into publishing, going from self-publishing to traditional publishing, was really kind of unconventional. Uh, it makes a good story, <laughs> um, but I guess what I, uh, I should start by kind of explaining the book behind it all. Um, my novel Thorn is a, is a book that I wrote uh, my senior year of university. I was uh, taking an overload of classes and working a 20-hour week job, and uh, I was part of a number of very intensive uh, school clubs. And for some reason, I thought that uh, if I wanted to write a book, then I should just go ahead and do that, that there was no reason to wait. So I did. I set myself a goal of writing uh, a chapter a week. I took the Goose Girl fairy tale uh, from the Grimm's Brother collection as my source, as my plot, so to speak. And I started writing and I wrote a chapter a week and uh, I wrote the whole book that year. And uh, I was very proud of myself until I sat down to read it. And uh, I, I uh, printed it out from the school computer lab as one sometimes does as a student and sat down on my bed to read it and I literally almost fell asleep. It was atrociously boring. And uh, so, you know, at that point, I, I suppose I, I could have said, oh, this writing thing, it's tough, but uh, which it is, which it is. But for some reason I went, oh, well, I'll just have to fix this. And I spent on and off for the next, uh, I don't even know, um, probably 12 years, um, possibly longer. Let's see, when did I know? Let's say 2012. Oh, so good Lord. Um, yeah, 10 years, 10 to 12 years, um, going back and forth on, on edits and revisions. And I wrote a number of other manuscripts, but I kept coming back to Thorne. And um, eventually I got to the point where I thought, I really want to publish this. And so I reached out uh, and started querying agents. And I queried for about two years. And anyone out there who uh, who's a writer who has queried agents know how incredibly demotivating this process can be. You have to sell your book 
with a one-page query letter um, and you know any one sentence you get wrong <laughs> and you don't know which one it is could lose you your chance with that agent or you could just have the completely wrong pitch for that particular agent and even though you've done research you can't quite get it um, and so I kept second-guessing myself and um, agonizing over query letters and not getting responses and um, right around this time um, around 2011 or so the uh, self-publishing market really took off and so I decided you know I I, I would love to get my book into libraries um, my I grew up a library kid I got the vast majority of my books from libraries I have wonderful mis uh, memories of libraries and I really wanted my books to be in libraries for other kids like myself uh, but, you know, it just, it didn't seem realistic anymore. So I went ahead and self-published Thorn and I had a few hiccups along the way, but eventually I figured out the right cover and the right marketing copy and all that sort of stuff. And Thorn started doing really, really well. Um, and you would think that would be the end of the story, but um, what's interesting is that I did you know, eventually sell this book, Traditional Publishing, but not because I went looking for an agent. Instead, I, I put Thorn on sale through a newsletter promotional service called BookBub. And uh, BookBub is neat if you haven't heard of them before. They will put out an e a daily email to their subscribers about the best books that are available as deals in the particular genre of your interest. So, you know, I, I listed Thorn, and um, unbeknownst to me, an agent from Stonesong Literary named Emmanuel Morgan picked it up on sale and read it, and she loved it. And so she reached out to me and said, I love your writing. Uh, I know you're clearly a happily established indie author. I'd put out a couple other books since Thorn. Um, but she said, you know, if you've ever thought about traditional publishing, I'd, I'd love to chat with you about it. And I went, huh, funny that I've definitely thought about it. <laughs> So Emmanuel and I had a number of kind of really thoughtful and intensive conversations around, um, you know, my career and the indie market and traditional publishing and where I wanted to go. And um, I did sign with her. I was really excited. But we hadn't yet decided what book I was going to take to her. You know, most of my, book, my books were already published as indie books. And so, you know, we were still trying to figure that out. And she went out to have lunch with an editor from Harper Teen. And as they were catching up, before they started talking about the books that they were actually there to discuss, Emmanuel mentioned that she was just excited to have signed me, that she'd read my book, and she didn't know what I was going to bring, but she was really interested. And that editor uh, went home that night and bought her own copy of Thorn and read it and loved it. And so she reached out to Manuel and said, I want the rights. <laughs> um, it was all kind of uh, very surreal and unexpected. Um, we had some extended conversations around it. And, um, and I went ahead and sold the rights of Thorn to Harper Teen and then also wonderfully to Hotkey. So... It, ha it was a very, uh, very unusual approach. It's not typical that your agent will find you off of a sale. And it's certainly not typical to make a sale to a publisher um, through, you know, just a minute or two conversation and catch up where your, your editor then goes out and, and buys the book in question and reads it. So um, it was it was really neat. So it was a very... Um, very strange path to publication, and I think one of the, the big 
I think one of the real reasons that, that the story did reach both Emmanuel and my editors was because it's, it's not a very typical story. Uh, I was writing Thorn. That, that senior year of university was actually the year of 9-11 here in the United States. And so soon after I began writing, I woke up to this terrible news of the attack on the World Trade Centers. And over the course of that year and the following years, I watched, um, I watched my country reel with anger and grief and then literally lash out and attack other nations uh, who as a whole had not actually planned or done anything against us. Were there terrorist cells? Absolutely. But was the average citizen responsible for what happened? No. And so what I saw, what I struggled with was concepts of justice and what we do when we're hurting and we feel that there is no route to justice. What separates justice from revenge? How do you gain justice when you don't have mercy. Is justice without mercy actually justice or is it just cruelty? And these were really, really big issues and I don't, I still don't have all the answers. I don't, and the answers I have are just the ones that I understand for myself. Um, but as I was writing Thorn, I was really struggling and revising Thorn. I was really struggling with these issues and, and also looking at, you know, the story as a whole. If you've if you've never read the fairy tale The Goose Girl, it is a weird story. So you have a princess who is um, sent off by her queen. She's she's the only daughter of the queen, and you have to wonder why a queen would send her only heir off to marry someone they've never met. But apparently, this is what happens in in the fairy tale. So already you've got some weird, unexplained plot holes. And the princess takes with her only one companion who is a maid, but who also, she's informed, is her bodyguard and her personal diplomat and who will hand her off in marriage. And again, you gotta wonder what the queen thinks of her daughter to be doing this. (laughs) Um, But she also takes with her a talking horse. And so they head off and the maid basically threatens and frightens the princess into switching places with her. There's the loss of a, a little kerchief that has a few drops of blood on it from the queen and apparently this is all the strength and power the princess has so when she loses this random kerchief of blood um, she is then apparently unable to say anything or stop the maid from changing places with her and the talking horse in all this time says nothing and does not in fact kick in the maid's head um, although conceivably if he's, he talks he can also understand so I don't I don't understand these really curious things and the princess goes on with with the imposter and they arrive at the new kingdom and uh, and the imposter goes on to marry the prince and um, the true princess is sent off to work as a goose girl and she is very happy as a goose girl and does not really do anything to come back to the palace and is only found out because her fellow goose boy keeps attempting to touch her hair which for me is fairy tale code for assault and so she takes his hat and has the wind blow it away. And now you're wondering, okay, if she can command the wind, why didn't she just knock over her enemy to begin with? I don't know. 
Um, but uh, the the fellow goose boy goes off and complains to the king that, hey, this girl is just weird. And so the king goes and figures it out. And the princess, uh, who has sworn this oath to tell no, no living creature what actually has happened, um, happily tells a stove what happened. The king is listening on the other side of the stovepipe. And, um, and so she unveils her identity to him. And retakes her place and you you read the story and obviously there's some really odd elements to it but it also asks a lot of questions to me and says you know why why would a princess walk away from a place of privilege and power and happily be a servant for weeks if not months you know um, why would she decide to come back? Because obviously she had some knowledge of what she was doing when she decided to tell a stove what she, <laughs> what her story was. So um, the story, in addition to kind of looking at issues of justice and revenge and, and mercy, um, looks at a power of a woman to make her own decisions regardless of, or, you know, despite when it feels like all our decisions have already been made for us. When we've been born into a particular place, we have um, only certain opportunities, we have only certain paths open to us, it feels like our life has been decided for us. What power do we really have to choose our own fate? And is our choice really only to walk away, or is there a way to make that fate our own? So it really explores the power of a woman to choose her own destiny and to own it. And so there's a lot of deep themes running through the story. And the other kind of rather unusual thing about Thorn is that my main character, Elyra, is not your typical heroine. She is not uh, a warrior girl. She doesn't have a secret magical talent. She doesn't turn into a super powerful sorceress or something like that. She's just a regular girl and she in fact comes from um, a really difficult place. I figured if someone was willing to walk away from power and privilege it's because they never got to experience the benefits of power and privilege. And if you are coming from an abusive home then you know you will take the opportunity to walk away from it if, if it's placed in your lap and Delira does. And so why, you know, why would she go back? Um, what are her choices? Can she own a position of power and privilege if she um, has never felt safe in it? Um, so these are, these are all wrapped up in the story. And it's the kind of story that can speak to you on many different levels. And I think that is part of why um, it was able to make that transition from independent publishing to traditional publishing. Uh, I'm so excited to be able to share it with readers around the world. Uh, it's a very strange time to be releasing a book right now. And I know that many of us are worried about our health, our financial security, our safety, and those of our families and loved ones and friends. And I hope that the story grants a measure of peace and um, a realization that, you know, we're not always in control of we're never in control of our circumstances <laughs> as much as we would like to be. But, um, but we can still find power within ourselves and that we don't have to transform into some kind of superhero in order to save the day, that we can do it just by being true to ourselves. And, you know, whatever that means, however you save the day, whatever it is that needs to be saved, we can do it by finding our own heart and 
and standing strong in what we believe in and just trying. And it, will it be easy? No. Will, <laughs> it's never easy. But can we do it? Yes. Um, so I am very hopeful that this is a story that will continue to speak to people and find its home in readers' hearts. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Thorn by Intazar Kanani was published on the 24th of March and is available to buy online now in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. You can find Intazar at booksbyintazar.com or at booksbyintazar on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Patrice Caldwell is the founder and fundraising chair of People of Colour in Publishing, a grassroots organisation dedicated to supporting, empowering and uplifting racially and ethnically marginalised members of the book publishing industry. Born and raised in Texas, Patrice was a children's book editor before shifting to being a literary agent. In 2018, she was named a Publishers Weekly Star Watch honoree and featured on Bustle's inaugural Lit List as one of 10 women changing the book world. Here she is in conversation with Joel Boatswain in an interview recorded before the coronavirus pandemic. Hello and welcome to Produce Caldwell, the wonderful editor of A Phoenix First Must Burn, a collection of stories of black girl magic, resistance and hope. It's so lovely to have you here on the Hotkey podcast. So great to be here. Thank you. So can you tell us a bit about the book? What is A Phoenix First Must Burn? Right, so A Phoenix Versus Burn is a collection of short stories. Um, there are 16 tales throughout, and they're each by various Black authors, um, and each of the stories, you know, take on different elements. So there's stories that are about girls who um, get their hearts broken, and when their hearts get broken, it, like, turns to ash, you know? There are stories about vampires. There are stories about witches. There are stories about just different types of magic, about actresses. And the one common thread is either fantasy, um, their science fiction, and they all end up on a note of hope, no matter how, like, sad or heavy they are, because it's kind of a mix. You know, some of the stories are, you know, lighter and funnier, and some of the stories are a little bit heavier. So where were you when you got the idea for Phoenix First Must Burn? <laughs> um, I actually don't remember where I was, but I do remember that basically it was like a very a few different things. So like, you know, one, as things are, like something, something, there was some conversation on Twitter about like the lack of representation and things like that. And then I was thinking, and I remember texting Danielle Clayton, and I was like, you know, like, if something like this was going to happen, like, I feel like, you know, kind of just talking about figuring out who would be in this and like, who would, what would it look like? And I thought about, there's this um, anthology that was published in like early 2000s um, called Dark Matter mm-hmm. um, by Sheree um, Thomas. And it basically is a collection of stories and different things, but it's by like black science fiction fantasy authors, um, like Octavia Butler and things like that. So I was kind of like, oh, like, what would something like this look like? um today and that's kind of how I got the idea I just kind of put it all together I basically wanted first and foremost to bring together authors who I'm a big fan of right so it was like it was great you know being people some people who I'm friends with some people I feel like it's a close-knit um community in YA and so I feel like I just kind of went around asking people like okay I love this book that you wrote like would you consider and I wanted to have some newer voices too so at the time when it was put together, it was 2017, early 2017, and I was kind of like, okay, like, you know, like, I feel like Justina and Danielle, I mean, they had their books coming out, but I feel like there were people who, like, um, Charlotte Nicole Davis, I'd read, like, a snippet of her book, and I, you know, it was kind of like people like that who I was like, okay, like, would love to have you in this, and also trying to think about newer voices, and, you know, and I, that was kind of something for Danny Lore, I had read, um, 
a short story they wrote in like FIA online literary magazine. So yeah, I feel like it was a different kind of thing. Everyone kind of has a different story of how I decided to ask that person, but it all ended up working out amazingly. You've given this collection of stories, the strap line, (laughs) Mm -hmm. stories of black girl magic, resistance and hope. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about what that means to you and how important these stories are? Yeah, so I feel like it's um, extremely important for me because I feel like when we were actually trying to think about that strap line, we were thinking like, hmm, like what are like the right words? And I feel like for me, it's like black girl magic, the idea of like, you know, each of these stories, they are kind of magical, even if they're more futuristic. There's like a certain amount of magic that is the idea of like these black girls who are in settings, like some people have never seen them before. Like we're getting, we've already gotten reviews and some of the reviews are like, oh my gosh, I have literally never seen this character like this in a book like this. And I think that's kind of magical. Um, And I think resistance, because I think it's a bit of resistance in that literally some of the characters are uh, like Elizabeth Acevedo's story where it's like, you know, it's a slave revolt. So I feel like there's like, you know, resistance in that um, way. And there's also resistance in the way of it's not what you usually see on the market. So it's like a bit resistance in that way. And then hope because when I first emailed everyone one of the main things was I was like I really want the stories to end on a note of hope because I think so often like the stories I read growing up and I talk more about this in the book's introduction a lot of stories that dealt with like pain or they're really sad and so I was like no matter what you take the characters through in this short story like it needs to be hopeful you know I feel like I want readers to end the collection being like oh I can do this thing or like this thing can happen you know what questions do you feel you're asking in this book Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm asking, why is it taking so long for something like this to exist? And I also feel like I'm asking slash showing, you know, like, oh, it's it's cl- so clear. There's so much talent out there, you know? I feel like we got this review from one of the, like, American review journals that was, like, a really a start review. So it was a really good review. And basically they had said something about one of my stories, well, the story I wrote, and they were saying, like, it's also about queer black girls and like finding their identity and I was like I never thought about that you know for me I was like it's a story about vampires and girls falling in love but I think it is I think a lot of the stories I and the contributors were almost asking questions about our own identity and like posing questions to ourselves of like under what condition is is it okay to choose love over duty under what conditions do you you know decide to switch from what you know and decide to like take a chance, you know, things like that. And like, and just like how to exist in this world. I feel like a lot of these questions are on the surface. A lot of the stories are, some of the stories might seem very like light and funny. And I think um, when you dig a little deeper, a lot of the stories are trying to ask these really big questions about what it means to be black, what it means to be black and queer and all these different things in um, this world, but also through the lens of like fantasy and science fiction. Mm -hmm. Okay, so going back to your role as an editor Mm -hmm. in this anthology, was it difficult for you to edit? And if so, why was it? Um, It wasn't because I actually was a children's book editor at the time when I worked in this anthology. So it was like, I was like, oh, it was actually, I guess it wasn't, wasn't. So I was like, first I was like, this will be easy. I edit novels all day. But short stories are very different from novels, right? So I think first everyone sent us pitches being like, oh, here's your pitch. Here's what I'm going to write about, basically. And I think some of the stories I had to think outside of editing a novel, right? So some of the stories I was like, oh, I really love everything you're saying here, but I feel like this is a book and I need you to like condense this into a short story. And, you know, I think part of an editor's job is you're supposed to lead, you're supposed to like really give someone the tools for how to get there and then they have to kind of get there themselves, right? But you're supposed to like help them pave the way. And so for me, it was like, okay, like what questions could I ask in order to inspire 
writers to figure out what was wrong, what wasn't working and how to get there, right? So I think a lot of it was like me trying to figure out how do you condense such a big world? Because that's the thing, I think a lot of these um, writers are novelists and a lot of these worlds are really rich and beautiful. And it's like, but how do you take that? And you like, yeah, maybe later you can write a novel and based on it, but how for right now do we like contain it into a short story, right? So it has to be a complete arc and it has to have a beginning, a middle and end all in a short story. I think that's incredibly hard to do um, and very impressive, like that, like they all turned out so strong. And then I think, you know, also I think for me, I think it's very easy in general when editing, like to be like, oh, especially as someone who was an editor, you know, you go into editing a story and it's maybe not from your lived experience or things like that. And, and yes, it's fantastical or futuristic, but there's still threads of like the of reality in it. And so I think for me, one of the things I had to work on was I really had to involve the contributors and trust them and be like, okay, like I'm reading this thing and you know, I I don't know, like I'm kind of struggling with this thing right here. So can you help explain to me like, what are, what's your intention? Like, what do you really mean? And then they'll have the writer be like, okay, this is what I was trying to convey. And then me being like, okay, you know, okay, I see what you did here. I see where it like, so can you like do this and this and this instead, right? Instead of me, just like shutting something down and being like oh that's like it's not working if this element isn't working because this anthology was so personal I think to so many of the contributors because they were writing such personal stories for me it was also important that I listened to them a lot and because I think a lot of times in the editor it's very easy to like over edit I think you really have to be careful to like listen to what writers are saying so I do that with 15 people (laughs) in the book your story is about an isolated young girl Mm -hmm. who is obsessed with vampires yes how do you know you've landed on something when you want to turn it into a story? Mm. Yeah, so this story is like, I guess you could say it's like semi-autobiographical. Um, I actually had an idea for another story that just wasn't working and I couldn't figure it out. And I wasn't even sure I was going to write a story for the anthology because I was like, I'm busy editing the stories. And I was like, I just don't. And my editor, the house editor pushed me to do it. It was like, I really think you should do it. Really encouraged me. And... I was like, okay, and I was in the shower, and um, I literally was like, I've got it, and, and I just thought, what, what it was that changed things for me, it was, I was like, I think you're stressing too much about this, because at this time, I'd already read everyone else's stories, mm-hmm. so I was like, well, mine can't be the one that sucks in this anthology, and then I was just like, what if you just, similar to everyone else, what if you just thought about exactly what you wanted to read when you were like 16? And that's kind of how it happened. I was like, I love vampires. I was like, I want to write about mental health. I wanted my parents divorced when I was younger. I was like, you know, I, and so I feel like once all those elements, I grew up in libraries, like not literally, but I, my parents used to always have to give me limits for how many books I could check out because I would just like bring home, I would take their library cards to make them check out books under their cards also. So I feel like once it all came together, like all the elements of the story just like combined, it was like, okay, there's going to be a black girl. She loves going to the library because she moved to this new town. She feels very isolated, you know, she hasn't really met anyone. And then she meets this girl who's a vampire and like, and you're like, under what conditions would someone ever believe someone's a vampire? But if you have this girl who's obsessed with vampires, who's really lonely and isolated, it kind of makes sense that like, she would make like a mental leap like that, right? That she's kind of just like, she has no friends, right? And she, and then as you read the story, you find out like her parents are having like, you know, marital problems. And then there's also like, there was stuff that happened with her friend group and why she doesn't have friends now. And so you kind of just like, you suspend your disbelief, but it makes sense why you suspend your disbelief, right? And for me, this was exactly the story like I wanted to read growing up. Like, I think all the arguments she has within about learning to like, choose like to take a chance and like fall in love with this girl who's a vampire over like dealing with her parents and stuff. It's just like very indicative, I feel like, of what I had to go through when I was younger, just being like, 
I'm just gonna live my life, you know? And yeah, it's great. And I feel like it's like, there's, it's a, there's an ending of hope. You kind of know it's gonna all work out. Like my parents and I are great now, and, and so, but yeah. Next on to you and your role outside of being an editor. Yes. You're also the founder and fundraising chair of mm-hmm. People of Color in Publishing. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about what drew you into forming this organization, mm-hmm. what they're doing? especially for marginalized members of the book publishing industry. Right. So um, I think for me, it was like I was an editorial assistant um, and I chose, you know, kind of like, like not completely fresh out of college, but I started in publishing maybe like a year after college. I had another job first, was editorial assistant. And I felt like there just weren't enough. I think I kept seeing like when I joined um, the publishing house I was at, a black woman left at the same time, right? So I felt very much like I, I could see it, the idea of like, there's only so many minorities at um, a house, right? And so I feel like for me, I was just like hyper aware of that. And then I was very aware of my my position as an assistant. And I felt like I didn't have a lot of like power or say as a larger house. And I remember like going to have his mentor, Andre Davis Pinckney, who's a um, children's book author and editor. And she worked at the same house. And I remember like walking to her office and I was like, listen, like what if there was like an organization for, I was like, I was like, there'd been a lot of like diversity efforts before and I was like what if there's an organization for like people of color in the industry and what if we worked on retention and recruitment all these different things and there were a series of events at first it was going to focus on young professionals and then we had all these people come to our first meeting who were like yeah but but what about me and all this stuff and so it became people of color in publishing um and it's been really great because I feel like we have like a mentorship program we have panels and we focus on you know retention and recruitment like it's not just about getting more people into the industry it's also about making sure they stay right because right now we're at a point where and the U.S., the numbers really haven't changed that much. And it's the same in the U.K. Like, the numbers, like, you're not really getting a lot of change, right? And so um, it's, like, how do you make sure people are happy, feel like they can get promoted, and things like that. And I think there are, there are I mean, I've met with people here. There are organizations in the U.K. as well. There's, like, them publishing, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I feel like it's interesting. There's also just a, there's now, like, a people of color in publishing in Canada. So I feel like it's been really interesting. We need diverse books now as in the U.S. and the U.K. So I think it, I'm, it's been really exciting to see all these orgs um the increase of just like the conversation because I think that's kind of the first step is like in order to like realize there's a problem you have to kind of talk about it and then you have to move on okay so we've done talking about it like what are the actual steps and I think that's kind of where we've come in what are you reading at the moment ah what am I reading at the moment Oh, I just finished reading actually Ray Bear by Joanna Franco. It's fantastic. It's like a YA fantasy and it's just like really mass for I am obsessed with the cover and I just think it's like very much so poised to be like one of like the next big things in YA. Um, I think it's just like and the author herself, I've never actually met her before, but I just, she's done a few like videos and things like that. And I think she just seems like fantastic. So that's something just finished reading, highly recommend. And another thing I would highly recommend is Cemetery Boys by Aiden Thomas. I think it comes out maybe June or something like that. Um, and Ray Bear is not out yet. Cemetery Boys comes out, I think like something June. And it's basically about this trans Latinx um, boy who wants to prove himself to his family and he wants to be able to do magic and all these different things. And so he's, and then he, <laughs> there were a series of events that raises like a ghost who's like this brooding, hot, bad boy ghost. And now it's like, oh my God, I have to like fix this problem. But all the while trying to prove to his like conservative family that like he has what it takes. And like, it's about acceptance, but there's also romance. And I think it's just like a really fun, but also like um, relevant and lovely story. Do you listen to music while you write? Do you have any? Uh, 
I soundtrack. Don't really. So it's like I always make playlists for things I'm working on, but I never really listen to it. I will tell you when I was editing this. Which so this book was originally a Phoenix first must burn was pitched as um, Octavia Butler meets Beyonce's Lemonade, and so I listened to the Lemonade soundtrack. Like I'm not even like on loop when I was editing and writing. I think it was like was it Daddy Lessons? I can I think I know the song. Like like it was like on a loop. Um, so I feel like that was like a really really big one because I think. The reason why I originally pitched it like that is because there's something about Beyonce's Lemonade that just is like, she's telling this story of like being like a black Southern woman and going through her life. And it's in this, like they're all different songs, right? But they're linked stories are talking about like, you know, all these different elements about blackness and about black womanhood. And I feel like all these stories, they're not linked. They're not have the same characters, but there is almost like a linked narrative, right? That they kind of like paint a picture of like the black experience. What's next for you? Is there any more writing we can? Expect? Yeah. Um. So I feel like, I mean, you know, I, I think there will definitely be more writing. Um. I have a project that's like another anthology that's sold that I can't really talk about, but it's equally amazing. And then I have, um, I'm working on a YA fantasy novel. And so, yeah, I feel like, more about that sometime this year but definitely definitely writing and, and definitely i feel like no matter what it's always going to be something like this the idea of like centering black girls centering black queer girls and like fantasy for sure that's all from us and thank you so much patrice for joining us today and speaking to us about a phoenix first must burn it's been absolutely amazing yeah thank you so much i really enjoyed talking to you Evoking Beyoncé's Lemonade for a YA audience, A Phoenix First Must Burn is a collection of 16 tales by best-selling, award-winning and emerging authors that explore the black female experience through fantasy, science fiction and magic. You can visit Patrice online at patricecoldwell.com, on Twitter at whimsicallyyours and Instagram at whimsicalaquarian. And The Magical A Phoenix First Must Burn is available to buy online now. You can find two of its contributors on the hotkey list, Carnegie Medal winner and New York Times bestseller Elizabeth Acevedo, author of With the Fire on High and our upcoming title Clap When You Land, and Charlotte Nicole Davis, author of The Good Luck Girls. Thank you so much for listening to the Hotkey podcast. We would love it if you could rate and subscribe and spread the word to all of those YA fans out there. You can find Hotkey Books at Hotkey Books YA and at Hotkey Books Teen on Twitter and Instagram and at Hotkey Books on Facebook and YouTube. If you're a Hotkey fan, you can also subscribe to the Hotkey mailing list. All of the details about that can be found in the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile. We would love to hear any suggestions or thoughts you have on the podcast. So if you have any questions or content you would like to hear featured, please do email marketing.childrens at bonniabooks.co.uk. This month's audio extract is from the powerfully moving The Last Paper Crane by Kerry Drury. Told in a mixture of narrative and verse, Kerry has written an important and beautiful exploration of a part of our shared human history. The audiobook of The Last Paper Crane will be released on the 15th of May and it is available to order online in paperback now. I stare at my grandfather. Suddenly he isn't just my grandfather. He's a person with a history, a life, who has loved and was loved in return, who was a young man, a son, a best friend, who was someone's hope. Remember the legend? He asks. You must fold a thousand paper cranes for your wish to come true. In the beginning... My taped-together books held 999 sheets. Now, only the cover remains. Questions swim through me. I look at him, worn down by guilt.
your grandmother Megumi was a good person, full of hope. But my father, your great-grandfather, was wrong. There is no magic in words. No magic in stories. Keiko? My voice is a mere wisp of air. He paces the floor as I wait. Through dim light I see pain, grief and guilt drip from him. She's dead, he says. Blinds come down over his eyes and I'm shut out. We form over time, products of experience, like rocks in the sea. Silence hangs like threads, like spiderwebs. Souls on tatami as I follow him from kitchen to bedroom. His body ghosting through the air. How? A word like nails on glass. Did you? Cracking. Find out? Shattering. His eyes don't meet mine. His shoulders hunch. His hands stretch out, holding a letter between trembling fingers. I killed her, he says. We lie to ourselves. We believe it as the truth. Hold it strong as faith. Back in the kitchen I am alone. By the light of the moon, through the window. I pull the letter from the envelope. It rustles and scratches, the paper old and yellowed. The folds resistant to opening threatening to crumble and crack, to destroy its knowledge before I can be privy. I ease it with care and with fear. Words jump out. Inquiry. Keiko Matsuya, Hiroshima. Bomb. Register. Survivors. No record. Reluctantly conclude. She must have perished. I can't look away from that sentence. The words that ate my grandfather's hope. Reluctantly conclude she must have perished. 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 I drop it to the table, and it falls in on itself once more, hiding its secret. And its shame. And I wonder how many times he had stared at that sentence, and I don't want to imagine the hurt it caused. I'm sorry, grandfather. I whisper. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I wish, with all my soul, that I could fix him. Challenge memories, so old, so frosted, so blurred. Look now through clear eyes. I wake to darkness to cold, to silence. My head is on the table, where I rested it, the letter next to me, its words echo and pound through me, as they have through history. The clock ticks to five and I stand, through the window, under a streetlight. I see a figure, grandfather, staring, into the darkness of the night sky. How many people have told him it wasn't his fault. How many would it take for him to believe it? One, I think. 
but only the right one. I glance back to that letter and I remember specific words. No record, reluctantly conclude, no record. <laughs>